0: For the love of all that was holy, right before I was having snacks before we recorded, and I have a place that I've bit inside my mouth and I keep biting it. Why does that happen? Why
1: do you keep doing that?
0: I know, but I think that's a universal experience once you've bit know. a place inside your mouth. You keep you're kind of fucked.
1: Do you like the <laughs> taste of your
0: own blood? <laughs> no! No. All right. It today sucks on the too, show. Because you get the salt in there <laughs> oh and the God. lemon and the yeah. I'm going to die. No. You
1: won't, honey. You're going to be just oh, fine. Thank you. Today on the show, we're going to talk queer horror. There is so much Ugh. material that it was a huge vetting process and how I was going to organize this. Oh, fair. So I just want to say that there are clearly things I'm going to miss. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not going to be able to. T- I only say this because I would assume that we're going to get some queer folks listening to this episode who might or these two episodes that may know a lot about this and just recognizing like there's a lot out there and I'm really just going to try to highlight the trajectory of queerness in the horror genre in a general way, but then also get um, specific in other ways. Well, and then also invite people,
0: you know, I invite everyone to, comment point us in directions of other stuff yeah like you know we're always looking for follow-up show ideas so yeah. if there's something that you hear us talk about and you feel like there's something you'd be really interested in hearing more about or that you feel like we missed or that it was what you know we're gonna that we're gonna miss a lot is yeah, what kathy's saying we're gonna miss it so if there was something that we missed that you think is really interesting and you and you want to hear us talk about it then just like leave a comment and we'll and we'll do that
1: Yeah, when I originally thought about putting this together, I was going to implement uh, more film reviews and things like that. And I said, well, anyone can really watch these. What I really want to do is give a history. Mm -hmm. um, And I will talk about films, but I just won't be doing reviews of films. But we're certainly open to, hey, you know, let's... If the audience out there is like, we want you to watch these 10 films and talk about it. We can do that another episode. But I first really just wanted to introduce the that topic. That sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The two biggest resources that I used to create both episodes. First of all, we we can't really get through the history without referring to Harry M. Benshoff's book, Monsters in the Closet, which is just like the Bible or the Torah of queer horror. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. Mm hmm. And it is so informative and anyone who hasn't read it or they don't know of him, I highly suggest using him as a great resource. And he was also in the documentary that I watched called Queer for Fear that was on, I think, Shutter and Netflix or something like that. It's been streaming on a couple different and there are multiple episodes of that really fun to watch the folks that are interviewed are really entertaining they bring a lot of humor to it but it's also incredibly informative and he is interviewed on that as well and those of you who watch into the darkness and some of these other documentaries you'll recognize some of these folks too so i rec- really recommend both of those for resources and then i have some others that i'll talk about throughout Great. the um, throughout the podcast I'd like to start with a quote by a woman, a, a trans woman named Zephyr Lisowski. I hope I'm saying that right. She is a trans and queer artist from North Carolina. She says, If there isn't a supremacist culture to view things through, does monstrosity even exist? I think that's a really important piece of this because the monster really is created by society. There really is no such thing as a monster. We create the fear behind things. Sure. Right? I will also say that some of these pro- proclaimed queer films are a bit reaching. I'm not quite sure how we've made the Babadook and the Blob queer films. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, like mm-hmm. Freud would say. But again, I think a lot of this is a Rorschach. Sure, And I do think a lot of these films, more people are going to see queer themes in and others won't and vice versa. So I also just want to plant that as well. Cause yeah, we project like, oh, a lot. How the fuck did you get a queer film out of that? We right? project
0: a lot. I read an article about Carrie. Exactly. And the power it, it, of and, identity. And in the closet and, and the And queer thing. liberation and everything about the movie Carrie. Great. So
1: let's start with uh, Mr. Benchoff here. A monster is often something that we cannot see. Something that takes over and mimics its host. You could be living among them. They could be taking over the world. Uh, Your child could be going to school with them. They could be in the military. So monsters have been the metaphor for gay in America. And America has really refused to be undercut by a community that would kill the Puritan dream. So that's a big piece of this. The gay identity was a threat to the American dream compared oftentimes to the communist movement was criminal. And by reframing it as a mental illness, it eventually became something to be cured Hmm. or fixed. So from Bram Stoker's Dracula to the lesbian vampire novella, Carmilla by Sheridan Lafani, (laughs) horror has been an avenue where the queer identity would be explored, exploited and treated psychoanalysis at its center, homosexuality was seen as a curse. In the film Dracula's Daughter, Dr. Garth says, like any disease of the mind, it can be cured. So right out the gate, they were using conversion (laughs) therapy on us, folks. I was going to say, okay. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Can you cure my brain too? Oh, wait, we only know like, what, 5% of the brain? We're going to put it in a the
1: washing machine and see what <laughs> okay. we can do with it. So, Alrighty. so the true horror is to be haunted by your desires, which are given no space. They are repressed, invalidated, and pathologized. And I think that's something that no matter what your identity is, we can relate to if we aren't given the space to be our authentic selves. Absolutely. So in the next couple of episodes, we'll begin to discuss the role queerness has played in horror, why many queer folks feel comforted by horror, and how most horror films have been an allegory for the queer experience. Horror is to queers as painting was to Van Gogh, a way to make sense of the inner torment and take ownership over the way the world had unfavorably viewed him. So we're going to start with something a little ridiculous we cannot talk about gayness and horror without <laughs> addressing the Hays Code. Okay. Now the Hays Code was fucking ridiculous. And when we look back on this, we could, those of us who are old enough can remember, oh, I remember, yeah, watching shows and noticing that, not realizing that it was applied to the Hays Code. Yeah. So the Hays Code is a set of rules and guidelines that Hollywood films were made to follow between the early 1930s and the late 1960s. So officially named the motion picture production code. These were a set of moral guidelines. You yep. we'll see where this is going Yep. and rules that were meant to make Hollywood pictures presentable. And here's the greatest word and safe for the public at large, which meant not covering or featuring certain controversial topics, themes, or actions. Some examples might be keeping Catholic fa- uh, and family values, keeping Catholic specifically and family values, no sexually explicit content. Good guys always win. Bad guys always lose. So we can see how that went in white America. At that Well, time. yeah,
0: and it helps you understand the films of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 100%. and 60s. Like, if you don't know about the Hayes Code, it's super important. hmm Culturally. Yep. My favorite is Don't Ridicule the Clergy.
1: Oh, yeah. But <laughs> go we're going to go into some funny ones here in a moment. Okay, good. Nothing that promotes bad values or perversion, sexual perversion. <laughs> okay. No swearing and saying offensive things. What? They're really fucking limited. But
0: you know what ended up happening, too, is that a lot of films used metaphor a lot more. They did. Dracula. We've been watching the Universal Monster movies. Like, the metaphors are, are
1: rich. Yep. And this is why they used horror to talk about... Us gays. That's right. So here's uh, here's gays. a few, <laughs> few ridiculous rules of the Hays Code. These really um, cracked me up. The first one's like kind of funny, but not the funniest. Mm-hmm. The one foot on the floor rule, if a couple is in the same bed. Mm-hmm. So they either had to Flintstone it and put a, that's a generational reference, um, kids. That is a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, <laughs> if you don't know the Flintstones. all right. We have, you know, Fred in one bed and Wilma in the other, yeah. or... If Lucy and Ricky were in the same bed, Lucy's foot would have to be on the floor because that would mean she couldn't have sex because sex was only the missionary position. Who's to say you can't have sex with your foot on the ground?
0: You absolutely can, but I guess they made a rule. (sighs) So the rule must have been real. Rule must have been real. Based in reality. Because all rules are based in reality, right, folks? That's right. Absolutely. Methods of smuggling. That's right. So... Sympathy. The next no, one. No sympathy for criminals. That's another favorite no, Go sim- Yeah,
1: Go ahead. Uh, no nude silhouettes. Right. No glamorous safe cracking. So this one is hilarious. No if you have glamorous. a robber,
0: <laughs> yeah. like in a bank. Yeah, because they can't. They can't. Uh, yeah, they can't sim- have sympathy for criminals, and they can't aggrandize. Yeah, any right. kind of criminal behavior. Interesting. So they had to
1: be like really bad guys, right? Yeah. No. In oh god, this one. This one's probably my favorite. Well, that I'll go to the other one first. No venereal diseases. Mm. Okay. Can't Alrighty. have crabs. No. Can't have syphilis. No. Here's my favorite. No indecent dance movements. <laughs> in indecent dances featuring movement of the breasts. Or excessive body movements while the feet are stationary.
0: Well, there goes your career.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kathy,
0: (laughs) nope. Jesus, not gonna happen. So
1: (laughs) she's trying to shut me up already. (laughs) Yeah, and we're done. And we're done. (laughs) So clearly, folks, homosexuality (laughs) fell under sexual perversion. I say it that way because if you've seen Edward Scissorhands, Kathy Baker is like (laughs) his sexual Sexual perversion. perversion. Banning explicit references to homosexuality. So both movie monsters and homosexuals have existed chiefly in shadowy closets. This is out of Monsters in the Closet. And when they do emerge from these prescribed places in the sunlit world, they cause panic and fear. Their closets uphold and reinforce culturally constructed binaries of gender and sexuality that structure Western thought. To create a broad analogy, monster is to normality as homosexual is to heterosexual. So that was Harry M. Benchoff Benchoff commits to the idea that gay men and lesbians have spent their lives being Dr. Jekyll, but in small corners of the world, on the weekends, tucked away in clubs, could they unleash their Mr. Hyde? Fundamentalist Christian groups have seasonal hell houses, which we've talked about on the show before when we've reviewed haunted houses we talked about uh, i've talked about this before i think it was a few seasons ago hell houses are in an attempt to frighten teens into com- conforming into heterosexual norms so the traditional halloween haunted house tour is reappropriated for anti-gay propaganda i'm gonna Whoa, give you a visual in a what? second instead of showcasing vampires and werewolves okay you ready I can't, I- ready ready These hell houses now use monstrous effects to delineate the horrors of homosexuality and AIDS. What? Imagine like sitting, sitting in a tractor and you think you're going through a cornfield and you see like dirty AIDS syringes (gasps) being thrown. What are they doing? Or like pictures of unwanted pregnancies and abortion. I mean, this is, this is a hell house and and some of these really fundamentalist Christian churches would create these around Halloween Oh my god. To get these children scared out of you their have, fucking minds. You have to be a certain kind of sick. Yeah, yeah. You have to you really have to be a certain kind of sick. On a lighter note, horror is what happens when one desires an inappropriate sexual object. James Twitchell, who wrote the 1985 book Dreadful Pleasures, states that the monster is the product of misdirected or inappropriate sexual energy. We see this in Clive Barker's Hellraiser, which we'll talk about on the next episode. As noted in Benchoff's book, the genre of gothic horror has been tinged with a queer presence since its inception. Openly queer James Whale, who was a massive director back in the day, directed four of the classical period's most famous horror films for Universal Studios. Frankenstein in 1931, The Old Dark House in 1932, The Invisible Man, one of our favorites, and he was quite flamboyant. And The Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, movie monsters of the classical period were projections of homosexuals of that time. Tolerated and oppressed. Exploited for their titillation and marginalized for being a social pariah. Both have mysterious and controversial origins. Well, and some of his
0: films had to abide by the Hayes Code and some did not. So in one of our Patreon mini-casts, we talk about The Bride of Frankenstein. And by the time The Bride of Frankenstein came out in 1935 they could not address the God complex that is so much a part of Frankenstein because you couldn't you couldn't say negative things against the clergy or That's right. God or religion or whatever. Right. But in the first picture, in Frankenstein's first picture, he was free to proclaim, you yep. know, that like I'm a God and yep. all of that, which is what Dr. Frankenstein, you know, had a God complex, obviously, so... Yep. It's really interesting because if you watch those films by these like same directors right in the 30s where they had to shift and change a lot. My God, can you imagine how much they had to...
1: Oh, my God.
0: No, the
1: creativity that they had to use to get what they to were get doing. get around yeah. it. Mm-hmm. As we start to shift, we also see in classic horror that the use of psychiatry starts to be brought into mm. films. And psychiatrists were used to uphold the status quo of... What we would consider a heterocentrist patriarchy by controlling social deviates. So we see this in modern horror, such as, you know, films like They Them. As as classic horror evolved, Universal Studios would implement metaphorical cures. Much of this was pre-World War II, and I'll get into that. So classic monsters began begin to take brides have sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. Uh, The wolfman's monstrous condition becomes a disease of the mind that can now be cured. Benshoff goes on to say that in 1943, a son of Dracula, set in the American South, the undead Kay corrects her boyfriend Frank when he starts to call Dracula a quote-unquote vampire. She says, don't use that word, Frank. We don't like to say that. Say rather that we are undead immortal. So what I think is funny about that is how often have you heard people say, like, don't say, don't say gay. Yep. Right? We know a whole state that we loves that. We're not allowed to say
0: gay anymore.
1: We're not allowed to say gay and anymore. And when
0: I was a kid, that was the word that was politically correct. Right. And queer was not. And now we have to say queer because queer was a very bad word when right. I was young. Got to keep up with the times. Got to keep up with that. Because it's the responsibility of the individual. That's right. To keep up with that kind of thing. And I think a lot of people get very tired of that, obviously, but it's the responsibility of each of us to be culturally competent and keep up with the language.
1: Yep. Sorry. Oh, sure. That's my,
0: that's no, and, the and, end. <laughs>
1: and then there's also like the, the idea of like, don't even say it at all. Cause it's offensive. Right. Right, And you have to be willing to step in shit.
0: You have to be willing to say the wrong thing and have someone give you a correction and not feel a ton of shame or, and also not be bullied for that. It's that's like, right. if you give me one correction, I'll correct. If you give me a correction and I give you second or third correction and I never correct and I make it a whole thing, then okay, that's a different... There you go. I got a different problem. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but I can be corrected and go, oh shit, I'm sorry.
1: So, uh, monsters in classic horror revolve around the attempts of medical science to cure the monsters rather than create them. So somehow make them normal enough to be integrated into society. If that isn't a um. metaphor, I don't know what. It... <laughs> so you know what we're gonna do right now, Shannon? What? <gasps> Are we gonna do? the Season six about the Gazer. I brought you queer <laughs> horror facts. Oh my God. I'm so excited. You ready? I'm ready to be shamed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. So this first one you will actually get, you'll get a, a choice. Okay. <laughs> okay. am like, I don't know if I'm going to get it, but okay. I give you choices on some of these. All right. Choices. Number mm. one, across entertainment, the habit of killing off queer characters has been so widespread the trope has its own name. <laughs> what is it? Is it A, the queer quota? Oh, is it B, burying your gaze? Whoa! Or is it C, gaze in the grave? <laughs> Can't wait to find out which ones you made up. Number two, who is known as the first openly black horror character? Okay. Number three, how old was Bram Stoker when Dracula was published? Number four, in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, what was wrong with Brad and Janet's car that caused them to walk through the rain to find a telephone? Was it gay? Damn it, Janet. Was it queer? The car was queer. Yeah. (laughs) Number five, in order to make his voice suitably hoarse, what did David Bowie do to it to prep for his role in the hunger okay so there
0: you go my mind went to the gutter on that one yeah he didn't he didn't suck cocks suck
1: cocks in hell oh
0: he did not i'm glad
1: you could articulate that i said suck cocks (laughs) did he suck cocks (laughs) i don't know what a cock is (laughs) Okay, we're going to start with one of the most depressing parts of history, which is the Second World War. Right from Bowie's throat. Yes. To- <laughs> Thank you for that segue. You're welcome. Carry on. During the Second World War, the monster becomes the <laughs> anti-hero. We're starting to, in some ways, change form here. And in horror, the psychiatrist develops a weak spot for them, suggesting that the quote-unquote normals might actually be attracted to them. Oh my goodness gracious. Can you believe that? No. The brief bit of compassion is one of two things. It's either out of pure exploitation and experimentation as an allegory that demonstrates psychiatry's use of more human approaches to curing the homosexual. So I'm either empathizing for this person, having empathy for this person, or I'm exploiting them through science to figure out how we can make them better. However, many of these good intentions have a disastrous result. And so what they're really starting to introduce at this time is conversion therapy and talk therapy that that was sort of the seed of it, the seed of conversion therapy and sort of alluding to there must be something inherently broken that we can fix. Okay. World War II was a caveat for many homosexual experiences and I didn't really know this much and I mean I didn't put it together until I started reading this because men were bunking with men and women right. were bunking with women mm-hmm. and the homosexual experience became commonplace um, and if found out they were given what was called a blue discharge which was dishonorable. So like if we found out you were queer you, you're you get the fuck out of the military and you go home with a dishonorable discharge. Yeah. So they were put on literal queer ships and sent back to the U.S. Why do we see large queer communities in major cities? Not because major cities are more liberal. Major cities became more liberal because this was the beginning of the enclaves in New York, San Francisco, L.A., and Boston. So these men and women were sent home. And I'm using... um, uh, binary gender, because this is how it was talked about. I realized that there were trans folks at this time, mm-hmm. but men and women couldn't go home. So they would send them to these enclaves in these large cities, which okay. then the development of these, if you think about it. How that happened, the yeah. The cities that I just mentioned are some of the largest gay communities.
0: Yeah, along with a long history, and this is why.
1: That's right. Okay. So the 1943 film Ghost Ship, not to be um, mis- you know, uh, mistaken for the terrible one that came out, I think in the 90s, <laughs> Directed by Mark Robson, is said to be one of the first American psychological thrillers to capture these themes. And there were some photos and um, more literature on the film Ghost Ship in Monsters in the Closet, if you're interested in that. Okay. In 1943, a movie called The Seventh Victim centers on a secret coven of Satanists who may or may not be homosexuals. My guess would be that, they're, they're, you know, they are, because aren't all homosexual Satan worshippers? I mean... Most of Based us are research. The linkage of homosexuals and witchcraft within popular understanding. Long tangled history. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The term faggot actually comes from the faggots thrown into the fires used to burn victims at the stake. Shannon, the do you want to add any of that? Yeah, the correlation. I, I, when you were speaking earlier,
0: I was thinking this is just like the witches. This is just like women being yeah. called witches uh, to... Create fear. That's right. So that the patriarchy would kill them. Correct. To And it would justify it to average folks that didn't have an agenda one way or the other. It would create so much fear that then they would get on board right, with killing women who may or may not have had, quote unquote, magical powers. Right. It's just that fear.
1: It's so crazy. that fear. So, yeah, this was essentially the same thing
0: and so then the correlation makes sense right Mm -hmm. to devalue yep
1: yep we need to get rid of these folks they're evil women in horror are often aligned with the forces of darkness even if you are a cis hetero woman and if you're a lesbian you're the spawn of satan One film I cannot not mention is the 1942 film Cat People by the legendary Val Lutin. This is probably known as like the bound of our time. A Serbian immigrant named Irina who must abstain from intimacy... She awakens the curse of her descendants, which doomed the women of her tribe to transform into murderous panthers. Should their desire be awakened? Irina meets and hastily marries an American man, but she fears giving into him physically. Her reluctance is broadly read among critics to be coded repressed lesbian desire. Cat People became known as the first lesbian horror franchise, the dangers of lesbian desire, the werewolf film for the female character A metaphor for hiding your sexuality. If you've seen the film or you know the film, and it has been remade with, I think, Natasha Kinsky, she's beautiful in it, is that she becomes the creature when she's forced to be intimate with her husband. And, you know, it's in some ways, it's like an early. Uh, version of the the movie teeth it's like i don't want yeah I don't, i'm gonna kill you if you try to go in there yep i don't really want that the vagina is monster yeah well and teeth wasn't really a gay film although one could argu- arguably state it is but it's the same it, you know she would literally change form to yeah. protect herself right the other one i think we have to mention is the picture of dorian gray story of a young man who sells his soul for eternal youth and beauty. Now, when you read this story as, uh, just part of literature, you really, I mean, if you read it just from a surface place, it's about narcissism, but there were a lot of psychoanalytic themes at that time that kind of put those both together. The psychoanalytic model often implies that narcissism is tied to homosexuality and Oscar Wilde's book is known as the most overtly queer, uh, story of its time, so since homosexuality cannot be explicitly identified at this time, it's manifested through Dorian's monstrosity and monster becomes a stand-in word for homosexual. So the use of the psychiatrist in this film makes Dorian's condition an illness that can be cured, right? We can help you. But some people believe that the psychiatrist wish to lay physical hands on young Dorian Gray is a metaphor for the normal, here again, mm universalizing the desire for the monster's special charms, their own repressed homosexuality that isn't part of their static identity, but the mere curiosity. And we'll talk about Kinsey in a little while of, you know, how everyone has parts of themselves that are curious, Mm -hmm. whether that becomes part of their orientation or part of a natural desire. Mm -hmm. This is what how they broke this part down. Um, so the 1950s become a time where homosexuality takes the position of an illness of the mind that can be cured. So Kinsey, we know that Kinsey's report on sexuality and the concept of sexual fluidity was rejected by many, especially by the name a man, by the name of Edmund Bergler, who described homosexuality as a curable illness. This man motherfucker, um, is really our, the grandfather of conversion therapy. If people don't know him, they should know of him and what he did. He was the one who started to make money off of queer patients and writing books about them, including the 1956 book titled Homosexuality Disease or Way of Life. Burglar believed that homosexuality was a pre-Oedipal condition that was a result of an unsolved masochistic conflict with the mother during the earliest period of infancy. Burglar maintains that homosexuality is a neurotic distortion of the total personality involving an unconscious wish to suffer rather than considering it's due to societal ideals that queer folks suffer, not because of homosexuality, but because society has made them suffer. Right. Any thoughts on that? That's awful. <laughs> you want to suffer? That's what this is about, and it's funny because when you think about homosexuality, when it was in the DSM, it was only in there because society caused distress. Being a homosexuality, uh, being a homosexual, or being a queer person, there is no distress around it unless society is making you feel shame. Well, about. and people
0: create the DSM, so yes, it's just it's coming from <laughs> like people create it, so it, it's not it's not you know,
1: but if not, you. If you ask a gay person or a queer person or however you identify whatever you want to throw in there are you under distress if someone says yes it's not because no. they are queer it's because society has created the shame that's right it's different than having schizophrenia
0: well and it goes back to your earlier quote about if is it if the monster isn't if we don't create the monsters then what what did you say that-
1: about having a supremacist culture Without right. that there is no if we don't have the
0: supremacy then you don't create the monster that you vilify and then make miserable when the monster was you know whatever that is yeah. it's like
1: uh, yeah i don't it's all and then for this fucking asshole to be like well you have an unconscious wish to suffer it's like no, we're not suffering at the hands of us, we're suffering at the hands of you. If we get rid of you, we'll actually suffer less because you're making us feel this way.
0: Well, in pre pre-edible suffering. It's right. Like, right. I know. I don't I know. Uh, mm. It makes it seem like a choice.
1: Yes, that's exactly it what he's It plays into the choice. Model. Well, and and that's what burglar stated he he was like this is a way of life and he went on and on I, I read more about him and how he really just threw away all of Kinsey's work and shat on it and the whole thing and was like you know Kinsey is creating a homosexual community and he's it's similar to the trans argument today where why are we seeing more trans people than we ever have we are brainwashing children to being trans it's like no there's just a platform for them to now talk about it right right it's someone's talking about it so it's it's opening up the proverbial closet for people to come out and be like oh hey that's me
0: well an identity is this generation's cultural conversation absolutely so you don't necessarily have to identify as a trans person or a gay person to be a young person having conversations about identity Absolutely. right now. Absolutely. I know kids who change their name every week. Yep, I know kids who change their sexual preference every week, who change their gender identity regularly. And then there are kids that are trans, identify as trans, go forward as trans. Yep. Also, keep in mind, there's this ability to have a conversation about identity. Mm-hmm. It's becoming less rigid. It's not you are this or you are that. Mm-hmm. It's more that now this uh, the young generation can have a conversation about identity. That's right. And you don't have to
1: actually decide. That's right. That's right. And that that is is very different. (laughs) Well, and for people who don't understand it, then they have to make they have to pathologize Mm -hmm. it, which is what this piece of shit did. Well, and now there's this idea of
0: being more more fluid with our less rigid with our conversations around it, Mm -hmm. too, which I think is very confusing for people
1: who don't understand what's going on here. Yeah, 100%. So, uh, lastly, before we get to our answers, I'll just talk about um, the, end, the end of the Hayes Code and one more film. The original invasion of the body snatchers, on the surface, we you know, was about the encroachment of, of communism and the Red Scare. But in the 1978 version with uh, Donald Sutherland, it actually could have been a metaphor as conformity to the straight agenda. And so, for trans folks, we can look at passing can be comparable to survival. Right. I have a few trans folks on my caseload and they talk about, you know, why is passing so important? It's not just a vanity thing. It really has to do with survival. So for all queer folks, the threat of being forced into conformity is equivalent to erasure and death. But here we are in the 1960s. We see an end of the uh, we we bring an end to the Hayes Code. The beginning of the sexual revolution and the gay rights movements would become part of the mainstream media following the Stonewall riots. So queer horror would become overt rather than a mere suggestion through a ghost or a monster. Evil, the concept of evil became more generalized as a human, as human, and no longer solely focused on gay or lesbian manifestations. And we'll start to see this more as we get into films of the 70s. 1963 would bring us The Haunting with a lesbian character who wasn't a predator. And from here on out, horror would begin to change. Our next episode, we're going to begin to discuss the 70s. And we know how crazy the fucking 70s (laughs) are. And the queer community's attempt to take back their power. All right. So now we've got answers to... I don't, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That
0: was your death metal version of...
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay okay across entertainment the habit of killing off queer characters has been so widespread the trope has its own name what is it the queer quota burying your gaze or gaze in the grave
0: (laughs) (laughs) i feel as if so i'm I'm gonna my differential (laughs) i feel like the queer quotas to um Brainiac sounding, okay. like too smarty like pants process sounding. of
1: elimination happening. <laughs> um, and then
0: what was the last one? Gaze in the grave. That that sounds like Kathy. Like a Kathy okay. made up one. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Because it's
1: so. Are uh, you going with burying your gaze?
0: I am. That is correct. <laughs>
1: Bring out your
0: gaze. <laughs> the gay in the grave just sounded too sort of like, like that's clever. Yeah. I, I don't know. Burying your gaze is pretty funny, though, I mean, too. that's clever as well, yeah. but... I mean, it could have gone either way, but that's where I went.
1: All right, number two. <laughs> who is known as the first openly black horror character? Well, I think it's Candyman. Actually, it was Bobby McCoy in Blackula. Oh, who was played nice. by Ted Harris.
0: Oh, I should have remembered that, because I did watch that documentary on Shudder. That was a great documentary. Um, Blackula
1: was one of the first horror films I ever saw as a kid
0: really yeah i i
1: that's it. Wow. and there's a lot of comedy i remember us laughing oh really hard yeah when it it's was very on. funny we yeah. should re-watch and talk that'd be fun to do just um like a, a, a i don't have we ever done like a black horror episode we have not okay that but that would be fun list. put it on the list we gotta start with blackula <laughs>
0: well we had to start with queer horror <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes uh number three how old was bram stoker when dracula was published I know he was older,
0: but I don't know how old, like 60 or he something? He was 50.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, he was 50. Number four, in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, what was wrong with Brad and Janet's car that caused <laughs> them to walk through the rain to find a telephone? Damn it, Janet! Damn it, Janet! I love you. Um, I don't know. Flat tire. Oh. <laughs> they went a long way for a flat tire. I was going to say... That's, and I, I mean, I'd take a, a flat tire over Dr. Frankenfurter. Uh, <laughs> your Frank E. Furter. Bless you. Frankenfurter. Bless you. Number five. In order to make his voice suitably hoarse, what did David Bowie do to it to prep for his role in The Hunger? Uh, cough? This is actually really funny and such a David Bowie thing. He stood at the George Washington Bridge every night and screamed all the punk rock songs he knew (laughs) to rasp him out well that's just perfect
0: thank you for kathy i look forward to next week same this has been an episode of terror talk my name is shannon and i'm kathy sleep safe everyone